All right, guys. Uh, hey, bring bring it in here real quick. Um, <laughs> what happened last night? I mean, is this Britain guy crazy? Like, I leave you all for one session, and stuff got real, didn't it? Okay. Wow. All right. I guess I'm the good cop. Maybe not tonight. Um, how was team building? Yeah. Rigid? Legit, legit. You know, that word is making a comeback. Um, a lot of my students use that word, and I, I mean, I can't think of it out of any other context in MC Hammer's Too Legit to Quit. And that was in 1992. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit more of an introduction before we got started tonight on just who I am. Uh, I didn't get to do that um, on Sunday just because of the service. But um, I would like for you to know a little bit about me as I get to know some of you guys this week. So um, as I mentioned, my name is Ryan Moore, and I grew up, I was born in Addison, Illinois, outside of Chicago, to two Yankee parents who, when I was five years old, decided to go take a job in Dayton, Tennessee, to go to the South, which is like, when we got there, two stoplights, 5,000 people. And so I was raised in the South. I'm a Southern person but I was raised by two Yankees. And so for that doesn't really have anything to do with what I'm talking about other than just I'm kind of messed up when it comes to those kinds of things. Uh, we moved down there because, yes, yeah, somebody was asking if I actually have a degree in hamburgerology because my dad went to go work for McDonald's. Yes, that's true. And so I grew up with burgers and fries, and I love, love, love McDonald's. And if there are any haters in here, we can talk outside after this is all over. Um, I grew up with, with that, and I thought that was something I was going to do my entire life. I love business, still love business, and the Lord had other plans. I went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, um, where I got introduced to football and all, all that consumes the South, which is SEC football, and came out a fan. I, I hated, actually hated college football until then. I know. The gospel was alive and well, so I was, I was changed, but... Um, Works, ended up working as an intern for a, a ministry uh, unique to Tennessee, and that's where I kind of got introduced to ministry. And somebody mentioned the fact, well, why don't you consider going to seminary? So I thought, well, that'd be great. Why not? It's the only time in my life I can do that. And um, just all to say, the fact that I'm up here and, and people call me a pastor and been to seminary, and like, that is the strangest thing. And one of the things I think we're going to continue talking about this week is the, the plans that God has for your life, and part of, the, part of the stuff that we're talking about here, and you can ask Britton and, and myself, and you can ask any of your counselors this, the lives that they end up having as they trust in the Lord, most of the time, they, they were not the lives that they had thought that they were going to lead. But the flip side of that, we, the, they're so much more joyful, so much more enjoyable and fulfilling all, all to say, as you guys think and process this whole idea of trusting God and what, is, what does he have for me, one of the cool things about doing that is the plan you have for your life right now stinks. And it stinks because we dream so small. I couldn't imagine. I, I would never have stepped into the, the life that I have now to imagine that the Lord has for me. And it's wonderful. I have a wife and two kids, and that's great. And we do ministry in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, right? This is... This is Britain talked about entering people's nightmares. My wife went to Auburn. I went to Tennessee. And people think that that war eagle, I heard that. Thank you. I'll pass that along. Um, 
that, that has conflict in and of itself, if you're familiar with SEC world. But put those two people, especially that Auburn person, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And this is what she would say. She said she would, if she were here right now, she would say, that's my nightmare. I'm giving up my dream to enter other people's nightmares, but it's actually my nightmare too. So that's what we do, and we love it, and it's great. Um, and we, the Lord may keep us in this um, for many, many years. He may call us to something else. But um, that's a little bit about where I, where, who I am and, and, and where life has been, where, it's, where I'm going. And if there's anything that you've heard that you're like, I want to talk more about this, do not hesitate, please. If you just see me sitting around or walking with Britain and talking about stuff, like, please come up and, and say, hey, I want to ask you a few questions. Uh, I want to make sure we're approachable and you guys can do that. If you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. As you turn there, we're going to be in verses 22 to 23. How many people in here have heard of that show, Undercover Boss? Okay. Um, So you know the premise of the show. Uh, The premise of the show is basically they take the CEO or the president of a corporation or business, and they disguise him, and they they put him into some entry-level job. Correct? And the whole premise of the show is this sort of videotape this, this un, you know, videotape this process of these employees coming into contact with this new employee and the process of him revealing more and more of who he is until, you know, there's, there's, there's that moment where they take the hat off or whatever it is and, and they, they show the employees, oh, it's really, you know, the, it's really the CEO of the company. It's really the boss, the president. And, you know, there's always those sort of cliche responses. I, I, I thought there was something going on there. That guy looked a little familiar. You know, they kind of do those generic responses. At this point in the gospel, as you turn to Matthew, Jesus is revealing more and more of who he is to his disciples. And it's becoming more clear to his disciples just who he is, which, this is the thing, demands some sort of response. And the same is going to be true for us as we read this. As Jesus reveals to us more and more of who he is, this invokes a response on our behalf. Either we move close, closer to worshiping Jesus, as the disciples do in this text, or we move further and further down the road in doubt and disbelief. One of the things I try to convince students in particular is there is no middle ground in this world. There's no neutral um, You're either moving, especially as it pertains to spiritual things, more and more towards the worship of the one true God, or you're moving further and further away. Now, I want us to remember really quickly what we said yesterday. We said that yesterday, the first talk, that it's really all about Jesus. We asked the question, who is fit for service? And the person who is fit for service begins with the person who is with Jesus. And we heard that he doesn't pick us because of our ability and our talents and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Rather, we have ability and talents because we are going to be with him, okay? And then yesterday evening, Britton showed us what, really, what service is really all about. And he said that service, when you boil it all down, when you look at what Jesus is saying, is about giving up your dreams and entering, entering other people's nightmares. And it's true. And it asks the question, do you really, really know what you're asking? Tonight, I want to look at this question here as you see on your um, sort of outline. What does someone who is fit for service look like? 
What does someone who is fit for service look like? What is the posture of someone who is fit for service? What do they look like? Another way to think about this is really, what does it look like to have faith? It's a huge word in the Christian community, and it's a confusing word too. What is the posture of somebody who is fit to service? What do they look like? And to get there, I want to look at the third myth that's on your outline there, and that is you are fit for service because of your self-reliance. You are fit for service because of your self-reliance. In other words, the person fit for service is the one who finally fixes the problems in their life and, is re- and really uh, it doesn't need anything else, and they're ready to go. They're self-reliant. They can do it. And I want to get there by looking at two things in this text, two real simple questions in this text. That is, what does Jesus reveal about himself And where does he reveal it? What does Jesus reveal about himself? And where does he reveal it? And having said that, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's word found in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds, while he dismissed the crowds, notice punctuation, Ryan. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on uh, to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, somewhere between three and six in the morning, is the fourth watch, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word. Dearly Father, we again um, gather after a long day of just a lot of good stuff, uh, conversations, group activities, good food, amazing weather, uh, beautiful clouds, uh, and we're grateful for, again, how it just reminds us of your goodness to us. Uh, we do pray this evening that you would do what you promised to do, that you would give us your Holy Spirit you would change our heart to be able to see things that we are unable to see without your spirit, that we'd be able to hear things that we are unable to hear without your spirit, and that you would make our heart to be good, good soil. So as the word goes out, it would produce a fruit, and we would leave here changed people. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen. One summer when I was in college, I decided to get a kayak, because this is what you do when you're in eastern Tennessee. You go and you get a kayak, and it wasn't a whitewater kayak per se, but it wasn't necessarily a touring kayak. It was Dagger's uh, combination of the two because I was 
didn't know which one I wanted to do, right? I wanted to hit some of the white water, but also want to go out in the lakes. Um, so that summer, um, I live about 30 minutes outside of Chattanooga, and the Tennessee River uh, comes, and it comes right through Chattanooga, if you've ever driven through there. And it's really, really pretty. There's a lot of bridges, and, um, and I, got, I thought of this idea. You know what I'll do? I'll, I'll go just south of, of, of the Chickamauga Dam, and I'll put in there. There's a little place to put in, and, and I'll have a nice leisurely stroll down the Tennessee River to the bend, if you're familiar. And as soon as you turn that bend, there's the layout of the entire city. It's gorgeous. There's these bridges. You have Lookout Mountain and then Signal Mountain in the background. And my goal was to catch it at sunset, a bit of, bit of a romantic. And so I put it in there, and I'm cruising along. And it's, a, it's, it's not a stretch that's meant for leisure. It's, you know, there's a lot of barges, and, and it's, you know, you, you want to do this in the daytime. So I head out, and, and in about an hour's time, you know, just cruising along, it's great. I make it to that bend, and I turn there, and I time it perfectly. I'm there for about 15 minutes, piddling around, just enjoying the weather. The sun, there it goes, starts falling down behind Lookout Mountain. This is perfect. The whole city is in silhouette. The bridges are just, you know, oh, it's great, right? I made it. This is, this is what, I, what I wanted to do. Well, it's time to go back. This is when things begin to change a little bit. So I start going back, and I notice that as I'm doing my normal paddling, I'm not really going as fast as I was when I was going the other direction. Um, to the point where I begin to notice as I'm going this way, that's the paddling motion, by the way, if you didn't know. There's a buoy that's bent in the opposite direction. Y'all get what's going on here. What had happened, and I was not aware of this, is a life lesson, okay? Uh, Chicken, the Chickamauga Dam had decided, and they put, it, put this in the newspaper, at this point in time, this time of day, they were going to uh, open their locks and release water, all right, through, just to kind of let water go through. At, it was like at 7 o'clock at night, all right? I was completely unaware of this fact. Might want to think about that if you want to go down the Tennessee River in a kayak. Um, there was a moment there where when I would just pick my paddle up out of water, I would immediately start going the opposite direction. This is trouble, all right? This is... Th- 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 this is not a good place to be. Um, and I'll be honest with you, this was probably one of the, one of the scariest moments of my life. I, there was at one moment, I didn't think I was going to make it. I mean, it, was, it had to be constant, constant struggle. I was getting so, so tired. It took me four and a half hours to get back to where I finally got. It was close to 12 o'clock at midnight. Um, I couldn't see where I was going. Um, I don't know how I got back. I did. I woke up the next morning. My forearms were just so sore. I could barely lift my arms. My dad, to this day, will not let this go. He thinks it's, he just rails on me about it. Um, that's what dads do. He's, you know, he's like, you don't even know what you're doing. Um, why don't I tell you this story? There's several reasons why I tell you this story. Uh, we, what, the main reason why I tell you this story is this is where we find the disciples in our text tonight. And it's really important that you enter into this with them. After Jesus fed the 5,000, a story that we're very familiar with, he sent them across to the Sea of Galilee there while he went to pray. And on their journey across the lake, they hit some bad weather, which puts them in a very, very desperate spot, much like the one I found myself in in the Tennessee River. But theirs was really more desperate. They would have left at, at, at the end of the meals, what the text says before we read there. They read before. Jesus sent them off after he fed the 5,000. They probably would have left before sundown. Okay, so let's just say that's around 7 or 8 o'clock. Jesus comes to them in the, thir- in the fourth watch of the night. That's somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning. This means that they are, they have been out there for at least 7 to 9 hours, and they're not even halfway across that sea. 
that's, that's a desperate spot. All right. You've got to enter into this fatigue, into this weightiness of where they are. Because the reality of, of what we're seeing in this text is this. It doesn't take long for any of us, y'all, to go from being in a very familiar spot, the lake, to being and finding ourselves in a very desperate one trying to get home. And in those moments, we learn very quickly who we really are. And who we really are is we are weak people. We fatigue, right? We are finite. But oh, do we hide it well. Oh, do we hide it well. April 27th, 2011, um, an F4-5 tornado, about average about a mile wide, came and ripped through the town that I live in of Tuscaloosa. Came about half of a mile uh, south of the university with students, 30, over, about 30,000 students there in their dorms. And it cut through from the southwest corner of the city and went all the way to the northeast corner of the city, creating this gutter, right, of just waste and destruction. Uh, it got as wide as a mile and a half, okay? I've always wanted to see a tornado. Luckily, I didn't see this one. Um, but it's hard to hide. It's hard to hide how weak and finite you really are when you wake up and you see 100-year-old trees disintegrated in a matter of seconds. It's hard to hide this when you see metal bent around any object that it came in contact with. Metal isn't supposed to bend that way is what you begin thinking. You realize really quickly who you are. We hide it well. Most of you, in another direction, are never going to go a day in your life without a meal. Some of you are going to begin worrying about, I want you to remember this here, who you're going to marry, and you're not going to trust the Lord with that. But just remember this one thing. Have you ever gone without a meal? Right? And praise the Lord for that, by the way. I'm glad that you haven't. Right? Capitalism has been that successful that you have got to benefit from that. Right? Some of you will go the rest of your lives without worrying about having a roof over your head. That's awesome. Um, some of you will go the rest of your lives having your trusty cell phones. And having those things just makes everything okay, right? But take all that f- away for a day. Shoot, go without your cell phone for an hour. And things begin to change. Things begin to change. Find yourself out there on a familiar body of water, and in a second it can change from a pleasure cruise to a life-threatening situation. I was talking to some of you, you surfing here, don't you? Are familiar with surfing? I was talking to some people who are surfing today. You know what this is about. I surfed one time in my life. I visited California in, in college. I went to Newport Beach, California, and they took me to Huntington Beach. It's like the Cadillac of places to surf, and I got up once, proud to say, on, I think, the biggest board they make in the world. And I felt it, y'all. I felt the ocean push me, and I, and I get the addiction. It's one of the coolest things in this world. But you also understand how small and finite you are. Some of you have experienced natural disasters like tornadoes, earthquakes. You get this, right? But quickly it goes away. We are weak. We fatigue quickly. We are finite beings. And what's awesome about this text, if you really, really get into this, is imagine the disciples getting to this point in their journey when Jesus shows up. Quite a contrast. Jesus comes to them in a way that he never has before. He comes to them Not weak, but strong. Not fatigued, but extremely capable. 
And this is what he does. He comes to them walking on water. And the first thing I, want, want, I wanted to ask you, the first point here is what is Jesus revealing in this text? And the first thing that he's revealing, it's the obvious thing, and we have to address it, is he's revealing his deity. This is what this is about. What Jesus is revealing to us in this text, make no mistake about it, is his deity. Jesus walking on water is a divine revelation of who he is, period. But it's much more than walking on water. It's who Jesus is saying that he is with respect to the Old Testament. I mean, can you think of any Old Testament passages or stories that you're familiar with where God has control of water? And I'm sure if you think about it for just a second, you'll think, well, isn't there the story uh, in this book called The Exodus where he parts the Red Sea? Yes. That was the theme song almost for Israel. Some of you might think of Jonah where he creates a storm in order to divert Jonah to go into the direction and, and to fulfill his will and purposes. One pastor said this, our good friend Dan Doriani, actually, some of you all know him. This walking on water, this extraordinary act, it displays the deity of Christ. The Bible says only the Lord can master the wind or walk on water. The Lord used the wind to part the sea so Israel could escape from Egypt at the Exodus. When the Lord summoned Jonah to preach in Nineveh and Jonah boarded a boat bound in the opposite direction, the Lord sent a storm to intercept it. See, only God can summon a storm and bend it to his purposes. No one else can control the waves. Job 9, 8 speaks of God saying, Who alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea? But from time to time, people pretend to try to walk on water at a pool. Some people can float very well. I heard a song today that said, I can walk on water when it's below 32 degrees. (laughs) But no mere human can really do this. No mere human can walk on water water. The last time the disciples found themselves on a boat, it was in the middle of a storm while Jesus was asleep in the hull of the ship. You remember this? After the disciples woke him up, he rebuked the storm and he said, peace be still, and the storm stopped. And do you remember what the disciples said? They said, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this? It's God in the flesh. And he is revealing this to his disciples in this text as he comes to them in their distress by walking on water. Okay, how do you respond to this? Look, you and me, we are products of the 21st century, right? We love movies. We love special effects. How do you respond to this? Do any of you doubt this? Do any of you know people who doubt this? This whole, whole business of Jesus really walking on water. And it is okay if you do. Please hear that tonight. Because it's not a really easy thing to believe because who has ever seen, someone in this room at least, somebody walk on water? See, I work with college students, and when you get to college, you're going to be around a lot of people who do not believe that Jesus walked on water. You're probably amongst a lot of them right now. And let me first say this, that is okay. The Bible can handle that. God can handle that. Because others don't believe, or even if you have doubts, doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And as a matter of fact, I love what one commentary says about this. It says, there is no proof, please listen to this, there is no proof this side of heaven great enough to prevent doubt. 
I want you in this room to know this is an environment for you to ask questions. Do not think that your doubt is somehow the absence of faith. True faith. Wrestle with it. Struggle with it. There is no proof this side of heaven great enough to prevent doubt. doubt. It happens because we are human, y'all. This is part of our fallenness. So look, let me give you another way to think about this, or at least to talk about it to other people. While some people will have a hard time believing that Jesus walked on water, most people will, will agree that there is something wrong with the way that the world is. Most people will agree that the world today is not the way that it is supposed to be, that there, is, there are huge problems. I mean, think about it. There are, there's poverty, mass amounts of poverty. When we took a group to L.A. this March and went to Skid Row, that just blows my mind. It's, there's ten to 12,000 homeless people in like a four-square-block area. Poverty, sickness, disease, loss, death, there's divorce, depression, dementia, infertility, infant deaths, cancer, Y'all, you, you guys are getting there. Y'all aren't exposed to all this just yet, but it's coming. The world is not the way that it is supposed to be. And most people will agree with, th- with this. They will agree that something is wrong with this world. And because this is a big problem, y'all, we need a big answer. And so here's what I want you to think about this. For those of you who are looking at this text, can I really believe that Jesus walked on water? Look, if you cannot believe that Jesus walked on water in this text, if you cannot believe that Matthew 14 is true, here's the reality. You still need someone to walk on water. In other words, you still need a big answer to the world's big problems to your finiteness, to your brokenness. You need a solution that at least bears some resemblance and scope to somebody walking on water. There is no proof great enough this side of heaven to prevent doubt. But for the moment, I want you to ask yourself this before we move on. Is that what you are looking for this night before you believe? For you trust Jesus, a proof to prevent all doubt. See, nothing like that exists. And Peter is a great example of this, as we're about to see. But first, what is Jesus revealing to us about himself? It's the obvious point in the room, but don't, don't overlook it. He's revealing his deity. He's revealing who he is. He's God. All right, second, where is Jesus revealing this about himself? Well, he's revealing this, he's, he's revealing this in a storm. Or... Our circumstances. After Jesus told them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. There's that phrase again, do not be afraid. Simon Peter gets all excited, our little friend that we're kind of looking at here. And he says in verse 28, if you turn there, go ahead and look. He says, Lord, if, you, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus replied, come on. Come on. All right. I don't know if you do this in your devotional period, but stop right there for just a second. What kind of person wants to do this? What kind of person wants to get out of a boat in the middle of the night, in the middle of a windstorm, and walk on water? 
Have you ever, ever asked yourself this question? Who is this person? Look, I've grown up on water my entire life. I love it. Uh, we have a place north uh, of Chattanooga on Watts Bar. It's another dam, TVA. Might have heard of it. Maybe not. Um, and it's a gorgeous lake. And we go there with at least every 4th of July with our family. And we have boats, and it's exciting, and, and we, I just love the water. And one of the coolest things that, that my brother and I will do, I have an older brother. I didn't mention that. His name's Brad. He's three years older. We'll take the boat out in the middle of the night, and we'll go out in the middle of the channel and cut the engine. You ever done this? It's one of the coolest things in the world. Especially if the light, the stars, if, the, if you're away from lights and the stars are up, right? It's a little illegal, but that's okay. <laughs> but it's the coolest thing in the world. Now, if the moon is not out, it gives it a different effect it's, because it's a little terrifying. It's so dark, and you can't really see anything outside that boat. And I just say this because there's no way. Like when I'm out there, there's nothing in me that, that, that has any interest in getting out of that boat. And I, I know there's somebody in here who says, well, I'll do that. I'll jump out of that boat at night. Okay, great. Good for you. But that's not me, right? So the last thing I want to do, what sort of person wants to do this? And add a storm of sorts in that scenario, and here's Peter. What motivated him to do this? I mean, just when, he, when he saw that Jesus was there, did he just have to go out to him? Did he, maybe, maybe he wanted to demonstrate that he finally had faith. I mean, just the story before where, where, where he was rebuked for not having faith, maybe he's trying to really prove that, Jesus, I can do this. I have faith. I want to do this. I can do this. And he, he steps out there. And guys, look, make no mistake about this. For the moment, he is walking on water. He's doing it. It's really happening. What would that be like? And nobody in here can answer that because nobody's done it. would be like, well, what's it like to see through walls? I don't know. But he's doing it. But as we continue in the story, it's not long before things begin to change. Look at verse 30. It says, when he saw the strong winds, he was afraid, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And in verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, and he took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? Look, it's really important to understand that whole phrase, O you of little faith, is really one word in the Greek, and it really just means little faiths. It's actually a nickname. It's sort of like if I had a Simon Peter said, this is my friend, little faiths. That's kind of what that means. It's sort of important. It's almost like the other nickname that Jesus gave Peter, or gave Simon, which is Peter. Meet my friend, little faith. Well, why did this happen? Why did Peter sink? And see, guys, this is where I, this is where I really want you to look at this. Wasn't Jesus walking on water proof enough for him to do the same? In one sense, it was, which I'm not getting away from this. This is why Peter did for the moment walk on water, y'all. He did this. But the text says that he began to notice the reality of what was going on around him, and he saw the wind and the waves, and he became overwhelmed by his circumstances. And see, it's at this point, if you've ever heard this story before, we often begin to hear great application points like this. Guys, here's how you become fit for service. Don't ever take your eyes off of Jesus. Don't get distracted by the things of this world. Don't get distracted by what's going on around you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Do not take them off. And there are some, there's some truth to that. Look, our aim should always be Christ, no doubt. But look, I, I want to be honest. I don't know about you, but I'm weak. I fatigue. 
I get bored. I get tired. I can keep my eyes on Jesus for so long before I get distracted. I'm tempted. Anybody in here ever tempted? Look, asking me to keep my eyes on Jesus all the time is asking me to be spiritually self-reliant. Do you see that? I can't do it. You know what I really need? I need somebody who's not going to take their eyes off of me. I need somebody who's not going to take their eyes off of me. And guys, that is the gospel. That's what Peter gets in this text. That's exactly what you and I get in this text. Jesus never, ever takes his eyes off of us. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of your circumstances, Jesus never does this. He actually enters your circumstances with you. This is amazing. Having faith, y'all, is not about being able to walk on water, and it never has been. Having faith is being able to cry out when you are sinking. Can you do that as a spiritual leader, as a service-oriented leader? Can you do that? Two quick questions, and we're done here tonight. First, I just have to ask this question to a room this size. What is your response to this? To the nth time that you've heard this, maybe, or maybe for some of you it's the first time that you've heard this. What is your response? Is Jesus someone, does, does looking at this text compel you to worship Jesus? And I hope that it does. Or do you move in the other direction more towards doubt, more towards disbelief? There's no neutral ground. We have to pick one or the other. The second point is this, and it's, this is why it's a myth to say that you are fit for service because of your self-reliance, all right? It's, what does it look like then to not be self-reliant? What is the posture of someone who is fit for service? And it's this. It's someone who is growing in their faith. Well, that's great, Ryan. What does that look like? This is the second point of application. It looks like this. Growing in our faith, y'all, is nothing more than needing Jesus more and not less. Even as Simon's faith weakened and he began to sink, he did the right thing. He called out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And guess what? Jesus did. And see, this is the mark of faith. This is what it means to grow in our faith. It's to cry out, save me. It's to need Jesus more, not less. I love it one commentator says, he says this. He says, the lesson, y'all, is that Peter needed to sink in order to take the next step. What? That's what he says. In order to take the next step in Jesus, because walking on water doesn't increase your faith. Only sinking does. Those that ask for miracles and get them soon forget, but those who suffer for Christ's sake never forget. They have their own wounds to remind them. When we are hurting, we do not flee to the rich and healthy for wisdom and real comfort. We seek out those who have fellowshiped in the sufferings of Jesus. That is the posture of someone who is fit for service, y'all. We have a saying at our large group, and this is just what Christianity is. We do say that for every large group, we say Christianity, y'all, is not about getting right with God. It's about trusting that God has made it right. That's what faith is. It's trusting. Growing in our faith is needing Jesus more, not less. But this is the challenge. This is, this is where we all 
uh, go astray. We think that we are growing in our faith when we get to a place where we don't need Jesus. We think we're growing in our faith when we stop sinning instead of asking Jesus to forgive us of our sins. I'm not at all saying that you, don't, you do not need to hate your sin and, try, and, and, and tr- do the best you can to get rid of it. I'm not saying that. To fight it. Christ, the Christian life is a fight. But we think we're growing in our faith when we finally stop sinning instead of asking Jesus to forgive us of our sin as he asks us to do over and over and over again. We think we are growing in our faith, y'all, when we stop lying, cheating, gossiping, doubting, instead of trusting that when you fail, that when you sin, that Jesus never takes his eyes off you. Do you know that? Is that the Christianity that you've been taught, that you know? Is that the Jesus that you read about in this Bible, that to this day he has never, ever taken his eyes off of you? And see, here's the irony. The more that you begin to trust that, the more that you begin to get your arms around that kind of love, and the more, is the more that you begin to love and to serve one another the way Jesus has asked you to serve. Because it's the only way that's going to allow you to go, as Britton said last night, into other people's nightmares. But the minute you start to think to yourself, God, you know, I'm really, I'm pretty amazing. Good job. I've really done this, done this well. Is the minute you said, this is the area that I no longer need, Jesus. Guys, we all need Jesus. We have his cross remind us. Remember the posture of of the two two men that went into the temple to pray. There's a sinner and a Pharisee. I want to read this for you quickly. This is from Luke 18. It says, on the way to Jerusalem, or excuse me, Luke 18, sorry, verse 9. Listen to this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. This is Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Two men went up to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. At this point, it's a beautiful prayer. We just end it right there and be great. But he doesn't. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Verses 11 to 12 show us the Pharisee. This is a person, y'all, who does not trust Jesus, who doesn't need Jesus. He doesn't need Jesus to be for him. He doesn't need Jesus because he thinks that he can, for example, fulfill the law. The moral law that, look, look, he fasts twice a week. That's far more than what Jews were required to do. He gives tithes of everything that he, that he has. And when, when you get into this, like, he's not just tithing his normal tithe. He's, like, he'll go get grain and tithe that. He'll tithe everything. He's, he's going way, way, way above and beyond what he is asked to do. He's not an adulterer. He's not an extortioner. He lays it all out there on the table. But the fact of the matter is, y'all, is he doesn't need Jesus because he thinks he's able to fulfill the law. 
he's been a good person. He's spiritually self-reliant. But here's the problem as we look at this, and this is what you got to ask yourself. All of these things that the Pharisee is pointing to are external, y'all. Did you notice that? They're all external. It goes back to how we try to hide the parts of ourselves we want to hide. What he's missing is not only do you need Jesus on your best day, you need Jesus every day because the eternal mess in your heart is so great. It's an internal problem, y'all. We can fix ourselves up as best as we can. We can put ourselves in the prettiest houses. We can do whatever we want for the rest of our lives. The problem is internal. Many of you know this, that we come into this world in rebellion and kicking and screaming and at war with God. It's an internal problem. It's your heart. Some of you don't need Jesus because you think that you are externally clean. Some of you, some of you, and I can relate to this, don't think you need Jesus because life is that good right now. What do, you, what, what do you need? I've been in Newport Beach, California. If I lived there, I wouldn't need Jesus either. That place is amazing. It's gorgeous. But some of y'all, that's your life right now. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying you don't think you need Jesus because it's so good. Because you're externally clean. It's an internal problem. Both are missing the point. It's about what's on the inside that needs fixing. And guess who in Luke 18 gets it? It's the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Growing in our faith, y'all, is needing Jesus more, not less. Look, look, I'm going to end it here. Those that think self-reliance is the posture for leadership, and listen to this, please. Those who think that that being fit for service and, and leadership that the posture there is self-reliance. Look, look, the only thing you have to offer people is yourself. Don't offer people you. Give them Jesus. Don't offer people yourself, your service, something that's fatigued, something that's weak and finite. Rather, in your service, offer Jesus. Strength in the midst of weakness, in the midst of our circumstances. What does somebody fit for service look like? It's like somebody growing in their faith, needing Jesus more. Ask yourselves this question tonight. Am I someone growing in my need and dependence of Jesus? Or am I someone growing in my amazement of who I think that I am? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for tonight. give you thanks for uh, giving us the strength to persevere. We're tired. Uh, Our minds shut off. But Lord, you never tire. And you never stop looking at us and gazing upon us and um, Lord, being patient with us. I pray, Lord, as we look at your deity here, as we look at what you do in the midst of our circumstances, that we would see a God that is more beautiful and believable than we've ever seen to this point. And that out of that, we would be forced to respond as the disciples do in this text, and that is to want to become worshipers of you. I pray this all in your son's name. Amen.